If you've got a Bible and want to look along or just look on in your bulletin, we're looking at uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, uh, chapter 13. So this semester uh, in RUF, we're on our, in our main like, weekly Tuesday night meetings, we've been doing a series uh, focusing on relationships, kind of a topical thing. It's not what we typically do. We normally do the kind of thing we do here at church. We work through a book of the Bible, um, which is good. You know, that, that protects the students. It protects everybody from me and my little hobby horses and just saying the same thing every week. Uh, but I was, so I was, I've been, for a couple of years, I was reluctant to do a series looking at relationships, but I was, I became convinced that I, I just sort of had to. We just needed to, uh, to look at what the Bible actually says deeply about relationships. I've actually ended up loving it, which is great. Uh, it's convenient when some, you decide to do something and you enjoy it. Um, but because, the reason I've enjoyed it is because it's basically just allowed us to talk about Jesus uh, and to do it really, really clearly and directly uh, and, and in, in a way that is relevant to questions that, that we're all asking. It's been helpful for, for my heart because uh, you talk about relationships and you talk about Jesus. You talk about the gospel. Um, so... Uh, we're looking at this passage this morning. Uh, <clears throat> it's one that we looked at a couple weeks ago in RUF. Uh, one reason is, well, maybe it, it will give you a little window into the kind of stuff we think about and what we do on campus. But actually, more importantly, the real reason we're looking at it this morning uh, is because as I've studied this for the past few weeks, it's been really helpful for me. It's been really convicting uh, for me. And it has, honestly, it's just helped me see Jesus better. It's helped me believe the gospel a little better the past few weeks, so I thought it would be worth looking at together. Um, One of the dangers in studying a uh, very well-known passage, a lot of you guys, this will sound familiar to you, you've heard it at 7,000 weddings, Um, uh, First, it's called the the love chapter. Um, uh, There's a a ton to learn here, but one of the the dangers is you'll just be like, well, I've heard this before, Fry, so I'm just going to check out now. let me suggest maybe the reason you've heard it a thousand times before is because it's something that we need to hear a thousand times. Um, and maybe it'll be worth our time looking at again this morning. So let me read this for us and then I'll pray and we'll take a look at it together. This is God's word. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains... But have not love, I am nothing. If I, get, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. 
Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us in it, that you do so clearly. Uh, And thank you that you speak directly to things that we struggle with. Uh, We confess, though, Father, that we need your help. If we're really going to understand it, we need your help. If we're going to apply it to our lives. And so we ask that you do that for us even this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Chuck Klosterman is a writer who is not a Christian, and normally his stuff would not be quoted anywhere in a sermon. Um, he, uh, he's famous for being witty and insightful with the way he critiques culture and analyzes Americans and all that stuff. It's funny. He is very funny. He is uh, very crude. I can't recommend any of his books to you. Um, but uh, this is how he starts one of his books. <clears throat> no woman will ever satisfy me. I know that now, and I would never try to deny it, but this is actually okay because I will never satisfy a woman either. And while I'm not exactly happy about that truth, it doesn't make me sad either. I know it's not my fault. It's no one's fault, really, or maybe it's everyone's fault. It should be everyone's fault because it's everyone's problem. Every American I meet seems to share a single unifying characteristic, the inability to experience the kind of mind-blowing, transcendent, romantic relationship they perceive to be a normal part of living. And someone needs to take the fall for this. So instead of blaming no one for this, which is kind of cowardly, or blaming everyone, which is kind of meaningless, I'm going to blame John Cusack. (laughs) Um, For those of you who are too young to know who John Cusack is, think Ryan Gosling. For those of you too old to know who Ryan Gosling and John Cusack are, Think Robert Redford, or even older, Cary Grant. Um, you, basic, for those of you who don't do movies, the people we're talking about are those guys who are actors, who are actually really good actors, even though we don't want to admit it, and they play a lot of romantic movies, uh, which are actually good movies, even though we don't want to admit it. Um, and they all, they're the guys that always manage to set the bar way too high for any real-life, actual relationship that any of us have. Um, and I mean, it's easy to joke about, but I actually think Klosterman's got a really good point and it's something that we all know from experience, uh, which is that there is in us some inability to experience the kind of deep relationships that we expect to be a part of normal life. Um, and of course it's not Ryan Gosling and John Cusack's fault. It kind of is. Um, uh, it's our fault, Right. Uh, And it's a problem that the problem is not that we just don't have the right techniques and the right strategies for relationships. Uh, Those are helpful. But the problem really is that we don't even know what we're looking for. We wouldn't even know what that kind of what what real love actually looks like in real relationships. And it's all of our relationships. It's not just romantic relationships. Right? Of course we want loving marriages, loving dating relationships, but we also, of course, want loving friendships. We want loving relationships with our kids, with our siblings, with our parents. Uh, but typically what we're looking for is some kind of, mind, as he says, mind-blowing, transcendent, life-reorienting experience of love. Uh, but according to the Bible, according to this passage, according to our experience, uh, maybe that's not actually what love is. Maybe that's not really what it looks like. So, uh, so what is it? What does love actually look like? What does it look like in our marriages? What does it look like in our parenting, in our friendships, uh, in our dating relationships? Those are the questions I want us to ask this morning. Thankfully, those are questions that the Bible answers, so we're safe in asking them. Um, 
First thing we ought to see is this. uh, True love, we could call it the kind of love that you and I are hardwired to long for, the kind of love that the Bible talks about, uh, looks different than what we typically expect, looks different than what we think. Look again at just these these adjectives given to love, verses uh, 4 and following. Um, Just think about these. Here's what love looks like. It's patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on getting its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. In other words, it's not happy about those things that are hurtful and wrong, but instead it celebrates everything that is right and true and beautiful and good in God's eyes, according to truth. Uh, It bears all things. It believes all things. It's not cynical and skeptical. It believes the best of others. It hopes all things. It's forward-looking. It endures all things. It never ends. Uh, I don't know what stands out to you among that list. I'm sure we all probably have our hearts resonate with certain ones more than others. Um, A couple things, though, that I think are really important. Uh, for us, if we're going to understand the, the Bible's perspective on love and what it looks like in our relationships. Uh, first, notice none of these descriptions say anything about how we feel. I don't know if you noticed that. Zero percent of these are about how we feel. So, for instance, being patient does not mean the same thing as feeling calm and feeling peaceful about everything. Uh, being kind is not the same thing as feeling awesome about the other person. Um, even the, the more internal things like being arrogant and irritable and resentful, those are all internal, but, uh, it's not talking about how we feel about the person. It's how we are, uh, it's talking about how we are choosing the attitude we are choosing to take as we relate with these people, which are attitudes, which honestly are not natural to us when we would naturally be arrogant and think more highly of ourselves or when we would naturally be irritated with them. We consciously choose to take the attitude of love. So the Bible's idea of love, it's not about feeling, it's about action, it's a conscious choice you make, it's something that you do, that's what love is. <clears throat> we have this term, right, in the English, love, uh, English language of being in love, um, I'm okay with that term, it's, a, it's just a term, whatever. Um, uh, I do think it's, it's funny, though, in, in movies and TV shows, there's always this huge focus, it's a lot of the dramatic push behind the storyline is... People trying to figure out, am I in love with this person? And it's always really, really hard to figure out. Um, uh, of course, we laugh about it. The only reason it's in movies is because it's real and it's in real life. And so uh, we're just laughing at ourselves, really. Um, you know, how do I feel about this person? Am I in love? We do it with every relationship. We do it with friendships, too. Right? Uh, do I really click with this person? Do I feel a connection there? Do we, do we get each other Um, And this stuff is great. It's easy to make fun of, but this is good stuff. These are real, genuine emotions that are created by God. And the Bible actually says a lot of very positive things about all of the vast array of emotions that we experience in relationships. Um, So I I don't, I really don't mean to make fun of them. Um, I just say that because here's the thing. The question, am I in love, is a very, very different question from do I love this person? Because love is an action, it's active, it's not an emotion. Uh, it's a conscious decision that you make to relate with a person patiently and kindly and humbly and to forgive them 
and to sincerely pursue what's best for them, even when it conflicts with my own personal agendas, um, to view the other person and their needs, their desires, their struggles as fundamentally more important, more deserving of my time and attention than my own. Uh, C.S. Lewis says it well because he always says stuff well. Um, He says, love in the Christian sense does not mean an emotion. It is a state not of the feelings but of the will. That state of the will which we have naturally about ourselves and must learn to have about other people. So when you got married or when you do get married someday, this is what happens, right? You're standing hand in hand with your soon-to-be spouse, very, very imminent to (laughs) to be spouse. Um, Flowers, decorations, friends, family, everybody's there. Here's what you say. Uh, You say, I take you to be my wife, to be my husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we're parted by death. Um, That's a vow. We call it a vow on purpose. It's a promise that you're making. It's a commitment that you are making about how you will from now on relate with this person. It says nothing about how you're feeling. Everybody's feeling great. It's a wedding. Um, You are making a promise about how you will choose now to relate with this person and therefore with everybody else in the world differently because of this promise. So love in the Bible's from the Bible's perspective, it's first and foremost an action. It's something you do. Secondly, second thing we ought to notice, none of these characteristics of real love are directly beneficial to you or me. They're not beneficial to the person doing the loving. Uh, In other words, every single one of these characteristics, if you look through them, they are geared towards serving the other person. They are self-sacrificial. I think patience is a good example. Everybody wants to be patient. Right? We all, everybody thinks this patience is good. Um, nobody respects um, impatient people. Um, uh, I've recently, I've seen a lot of impatience in myself recently, which has been a big bummer. Um, I used to think I was very, uh, that was like one of my strengths, patience, but recently I'm not so sure. It especially shows up with my children. Um, I hate it. I'm ashamed of it, honestly. But uh, here's, Here's, where, here's what impatience is doing. Here's what's going on with impatience. When I'm impatient with my children, I'm saying that m- me and my agendas, my to-do list, my priorities are fundamentally more important than you. Um, I'm saying that uh, I am unwilling to deal with the inconvenience right now of helping you, of working with you, of seeing you grow. Uh, I'm basically saying, hey, this is my world and you're kind of getting in my way. Um, but patience, on the other hand, would say, I am actually willing to sacrifice my agendas, my priorities, my preferences, and my comfort uh, in order to serve you. It's self-sacrificial. And we could walk through every single one of those characteristics that's listed there for love. Uh, bottom line, true love puts the other person ahead of yourself. It says, you are fundamentally more important to me than I am. Um, it says, I will serve you rather than demanding to be served by you. So basically, none of these characteristics are fun. (laughs) Um, 
They're not easy. These are all things that we want everybody else to be for us, but we have zero natural desire to be for other people. So what that means, at least at the initial level, is if we're going to actually love the people around us, it's going to take a tremendous amount of God's grace at work in our hearts, changing us, if that's actually going to happen. Real love is not something that you can dig down and find deep in your heart to have for somebody. It's something that's going to have to come in from the outside through the Holy Spirit. So here are some of the uncomfortable questions that this passage is going to force us to ask ourselves. Um, How well do I love the people around me? How well do I love my spouse? Is this honestly a picture of the way I relate with my husband or my wife? Um, Where am I refusing to sacrifice my agendas for the good of my marriage? How well do I love my children? Of course, you, you, we all, you naturally have a great amount of affection for your kids, but are you patient with them? Uh, do you treat them kindly? Are you humble in the way that you listen to them, the way that you talk to them? Are you humble in the way that you discipline? Are you irritable around them? As I, you know, as I've been thinking about, it, I'm sure most of us, myself included, uh, we think of the love that we have for our kids as much more self-sacrificial in our b- brains than it actually is in real life. Uh, because I think you imagine some physically threatening situation, and you think I would easily take a bullet for my kids. Um, but are you willing to sacrifice your agenda for them? Uh, are you willing to sacrifice your reputation? For, for the sake of your kids? Are you willing to sacrifice your picture of the good life, whatever that is? Um, how much of our parenting, how much of what we typically think of as self-sacrificial might actually be self-serving because we have this picture of what our little family is supposed to look like and what it's supposed to feel like for me? How well do I love my friends? Like when you think about what friendships you're going to invest the most time into and invest the most energy into pursuing is, is the only question that's in your mind, which relationships do I find the most fulfilling? Which are the funnest? Uh, which are the easiest? Um, those are great things. We should want those in our friendship. We should want friendships that are easy and comfortable and fun. There's nothing wrong with fun. Uh, But if that's the driving force behind the relationships that you choose to pursue, you're really only pursuing self-fulfillment. You're not really pursuing love. Okay, I've got two pictures of love here that we're going to look at side by side. The first one's from a lady. Her name's Hannah Rosen in an article that she wrote for The Atlantic a couple years ago. There's a ton of stuff. People constantly write stuff. There's obviously a huge market for stuff written trying to analyze relationships these days and uh, what it looks like and what love looks like. And uh, some, are, some analyses are better than others. I thought this one was thoughtful, insightful, and painfully accurate. Um, she's talking about trying to look at what exactly young people specifically are looking for in relationships these days. And she, she's, uh, she quotes a woman uh, in her article. And so this woman she's interviewing explains what both men and women want. She says this, We want a relationship of freedom. The freedom to be there for each other and available sexually when it suits the both of us and also emotionally when it suits the both of us. 
We want it to be fun and maybe involve some dates and long talks over coffee, but we certainly don't want these relationships to be entered into with an expectation of long-term or to get in the way of the other important things in our lives. Compatibility isn't even all that important. Um, Amusement, affection, affirming attention, sexual fulfillment, the ever-elusive fun, that's what we're after. We're putting ourselves first. Some might call that selfish. We call it smart and independent and secure. And Rosen then adds, seems pretty respectable to me, even fun. Um, It's pretty accurate, Uh, maybe, hopefully not accurate for the majority of people in the church, but it's certainly, if we took a cross-section of the campus, if we took a cross-section of young professional population, even here in Boise, uh, it's accurate. Here's what I found convicting reading this article. Uh, First of all, this approach to relationships doesn't just apply to romantic relationships. And if we're being honest, if you take out all of the references to sexuality, this is like a pretty accurate picture of how most of us pursue most of our relationships. This is what most of us are looking for. We're looking for amusement and affection, affirming attention, and the ever-elusive fun. Doesn't that sound a lot like your relationships? That sounds like mine, unfortunately. It's sort of our default mode, I think. Now compare that picture of love from this one, a guy named Malcolm Muggeridge. He's a pretty well-known British journalist. He died about 25 years ago. Um, But he writes in, in his memoirs about the time when his wife, Kitty, was sick. She was in the hospital. She was not expected to live. And he writes this, It was a cruelly anxious time from every point of view. Every day arranging for someone to be with the children. I went and sat with her. She was fighting to live. Her face pared down to a skull. Her body a yellow skeleton. While I was there, the doctor came in and said that in the night she had lost a lot of blood and desperately needed a blood transfusion. It was before the days of bottled plasma. Wouldn't I do for a donor, I asked, with a sudden sense of hope. My blood count was taken and to my infinite relief proved satisfactory. And there and then, by a procedure that would seem grotesquely primitive nowadays, I was joined to her by a tube with a pump in the middle so that I could actually watch the blood being pumped out of me into her. Never in all our life together had I so completely and perfectly and joyously experienced love's fulfillment as on that moment. For the first time, I truly understood what love meant. Like, which one of those pictures is, is your heart just naturally drawn towards? Because one's about self-fulfillment, the other's about self-giving. Uh, one's about feelings and fun and emotional fulfillment, the other's very practical and very tangible and very gritty. Uh, one's kind of alluring, the other one is gross. Um, why are we drawn towards the blood transfusion? Uh, Why do we instinctively know that that is the truer picture of love? It's because that's what love is. It's because that's how God made it. It's because that's what's talked about here in 1 Corinthians 13. That's what you and I are pre-wired to long for in our relationships, our friendships, dating relationships, marriage, parental relationships, everything. It's how God made us. It's how it's written into our DNA. We can't avoid it. Because there's something more fundamental going on in this passage. I have heard to my memory, I'm sure I've heard more, but I remember three wedding sermons on this text. Two of them were terrible, uh, and one of them was awesome. 
And the two that were terrible totally missed this deeper reality that's sitting in the background of this passage, and it is this. It is the song that every Christian kid that grew up in a Christian home knows by heart. It is the truth that Jesus loves me. That's what we're supposed to read in the background of this passage. Because here's how the Bible works. Uh, Before it's ever about you, before it's ever about me and all the stuff we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to handle our relationships, it's first about God, and it's about what he has done for us. This is a picture of Jesus. Patience, kindness, humility, self-giving, mercy, faithfulness to the end, uh, relentless endurance, never-ending love. Uh, This is first and foremost a picture of who God is and how he has graciously chosen to relate with us in Jesus Christ. It's about that way before it's ever about how we're supposed to relate with each other. Ultimately, it's really a picture of the cross, right? 1 Corinthians 13 is a picture of the cross. Um, this is why, actually, it's so easy for us to want to turn, to, to turn our relationships into little idols. We treat them as if they're God. It's because when our relationships are at their best, like they kind of look like God. They resemble him. He's made them that way. We're supposed to see him in them. That's how he made us. Uh, The reason that you restlessly pursue and long for the kind of true love that we read here in your relationships is because it feels a lot like Jesus. Um, And the reason that we also so easily fall into wrapping all of our hopes and our dreams and our sense of security and our sense of purpose around other people and our relationships is because we have a really, really hard time that that kind of love is actually already ours in Jesus Christ. Like, so any small taste of real love that you or I have ever had in any of our relationships is just a little miniature picture of what we already have in Jesus Christ. That's uh, it's at least part of what Paul's getting at in verse 12 when he says, he says, now these days we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And if we are not careful, our hearts very, very easily confuse the dim reflection of Christ's love for Christ himself. And we start uh, looking to those reflections of his love to save us from all of our insecurities and unimportance and all of that. That's what an idol is. Here's the radical truth, right, that's laying in the background of this passage about true love. What is it really? It's, it's this reality. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. That's your homework. Here's your homework for this week. You didn't know you were getting homework. Uh, I want you to read back through Romans chapter 13 with an eye to the fact that sitting behind this is the truth that Jesus has placed his love upon you. So kind of the, the main point, really, of the whole semester with what we've been doing with RUF, uh, all of what we're doing is centered around this one basic point, is that your relationships inevitably reveal something about what you understand about the gospel. Uh, in other words, how you understand Jesus and what he's done for you is inevitably going to show through in the way you relate with other people. So what that means is that if we really want to see relationships transformed, if we actually want to see ourselves be able to love the people around us better, 
the first thing that we're going to have to come to grips with is the fact that true love is not this mysterious hidden thing that we have to spend our whole lives searching for in some other person. In fact, it's actually something that we already have. It's yours. It's in Jesus Christ. I mean, what, what, how would your relationships look different if you actually believed that you already had the love that you're looking for? Why don't we pray? Our Father in heaven, your uh, love is far deeper than we will ever know. We would do well to, in fact, we will spend eternity uh, plumbing the depths of your love for us and celebrating it. Forgive us for our small minds that have such a hard time taking in the depths and even the reality at all that you, in fact, love your children. Forgive us for the ways that we abuse our relationships and make them about us and make them about our little kingdoms rather than you and your kingdom. Would you grow each one of us in our ability to relate wisely and lovingly with the people that you've, in your wisdom, put us around? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.